to The Sleeper and the Bust. This is episode number 163. I am your host, Nicholas Minix, and joining me as usual during the week is Eno Saris. Eno, how are you today? I'm doing good. I was uh, awesome at pickup basketball yesterday, <laughs> and uh, my son allowed me to sleep till the generous hour of 7 a.m., uh, so now I feel well-rested and on top of my game. Outstanding. Wow, that's fantastic news. I didn't realize that all that also the hoop scheme had been had picked up mightily. I think we're due for some incredible analysis today then. <laughs> yeah. If those <laughs> things are correlated at all. <laughs> I've actually that's that's the latest study I conducted over at uh <laughs> at not related graphs. <clears throat> <laughs> well, uh you're feeling a lot better. Than Homer Bailey, uh, I'm going to assume, because uh, just within the last 10 or 15 minutes or so, which will give you a good idea of when we started this podcast, um, the Reds announced on Twitter that Homer Bailey will have surgery tomorrow to repair the strained. Uh, now they're just calling it flat out torn. So I don't know if that means it's a complete tear of the flexor tendon in his forearm, but he will have surgery tomorrow to repair that. It's been discussed as a possibility that he had he might have, he might need surgery. Uh, and quickly, I think it kind of escalated once he had some doctor's appointments and all that stuff. Uh, that tends to happen. Um, this is not a torn UCL. This is not Tommy John's surgery. Uh, so recovery period is shorter, but it's not like a ton shorter. But I would like to think that uh, outcomes and things like that are, mu are much better for him uh, simply because it's not nearly as serious. It's not as serious. I shouldn't say at nearly as serious, but it's not as serious a procedure. Yeah, I think it's the same thing that um, Colby Lewis had in, let's see there, July 27th of 2012, um, and he missed a full year with it. Um, but that does not mean that Bailey will because Bailey is younger um, and that usually means better outcomes. Um, and the timing is a little bit different. I don't know if that'll mean anything. Um, so, uh, I am not a doctor. I can't tell you exactly when you go back, but, um, I would guess that if they say anything about, we hope he's ready for, um, the start of next season, that that's optimistic and that he will miss a little bit of next season. Plus we know past injury begets future injury. Um, so this now means that, um, Bailey is slightly more likely to get injured in the future, which is uh, even better news. <laughs> oh, man. And now I'm depressed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, – I think it's – it seems pretty fair to say that he's going to miss some time next year. And that's uh, – which I think that – I mean, that, that should at least give you – to me, like, that's kind of uh, my gauge is my emotional reaction to surgery news. Um, <laughs> All right. like if he had, if, if we'd heard that it was going to be Tommy John surgery, then Bailey, then I would, you know, you could write off Bailey for next season, but now we're just talking about, he's, you know, he's, it seems pretty likely that he's going to miss some time next year and it could, it could be a significant period of time, but uh, we're still looking at the possibility that he pitches next season and you know, pitch pitches a decent chunk of it. So, um, 
it's just uh, it is an unfortunate development for a guy who basically emerged as a pseudo ace last season and then came into came into it uh, kind of hoping for that follow up after he was have re-signed that huge contract for the Reds. But uh... you know, I I looked at his uh, the the injury prediction factors and the um, the velocity was fine. It was actually trending upwards a little bit, um, but. Um, he he might have had some sort of event uh, in April. Uh, there was some weird release point stuff going on there, and then since April, uh, his strike zone percentage has just uh, steadily gone down. So um, there was a little bit of, of this being in the numbers. Also, just the fact that um, um, did he was he injured in spring? Uh, I am not positive, but I will look on that momentarily while you continue to wax uh, prophetically on his. Well, anyway, <laughs> you know, I, it, I think I don't know that we can blame everything that happened this year on this, whatever it is. Um, if it if it has been going on um, since, if it has been going on since uh, May, it might explain a little bit of the Homer issues. But uh, he'd really righted the ship um, and. Uh, and was pretty much uh, the Bailey we've always seen, um, and he kept uh, the velocity above 94, which is a great sign. So um, I don't, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but um, you know, this stuff happens to everyone, I guess. Yeah, it's <clears throat> the real answer. Just uh, for the curious, uh, I mean, he had nothing reported as far as a uh, anything related to his arm. And, in the spring, he did deal with a groin strain and had some knee ten uh, groin strain in March, and then had some knee tendonitis around the All Star break. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about the the leg problems. So uh, I guess it's always possible that, uh, well, in theory, and again, I'm not a doctor either, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess it's a possibility that those things eventually resulted in some kind of compensation thing. But considering that the only problem seems to have been the zone percentage and not really velocity i don't know it seems a little less likely i guess but uh, my studies in that area are trailing the league in that category colby rasmus has been benched you know the eno prediction model continues to be a success <clears throat> uh, he has been benched and uh, i think it's what's interesting and kind of cool about that is that the blue jays just came right out and said it we're not going to play him anymore in favor of some young guys. <laughs> uh, and it's, I guess it would kind of suggest that Toronto is uh, considering themselves out of the playoff picture, although they're not. Um, and uh, Lewis, uh, I'm sorry, Rasmus is a free agent next season or well, this winter. And uh, it, it brings to light a couple of possibilities. But what's interesting is since this, since uh, they actually made the move and before they announced it, the players who have started in center field are, Kevin Pillar, and then uh, Anthony Ghosh. And Anthony, uh, Ghosh is not really a surprise. He's been playing. He had been playing, I should say, uh, before they demoted him for the last couple of weeks of August. Um, and in part, that might have been a roster crunch type thing. But uh, And Ghosh seems to be a benef beneficiary in the short term. But, of course, Dalton Pompey has been somebody that's kind of on our minds. But it, it seems like a good possibility. It seems like a a possibility that uh, simply the the players that they have and and the Blue Jays might be a little smitten with a Kevin Pillar type say, and they want to continue to see if Ghost might be at least a, 
a small part of their future, I would imagine. So, I think judging from the call-up times um, and uh, who was on the team and when, uh, Pilar was on the team um, uh, earlier than uh, Anthony Ghost, just based on you know transaction histories and. Um, you know, since Pilar was on the team, he probably got the first start. But just in terms of, you know, the fact that he's 25, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't really um, have the pedigree um, of Ghost, doesn't really have the tools of Ghost, um, and is, you know, he had some nice uh, strikeout rates in the minor leagues. Uh, but, um, and I know, you know, he's only had 170 so plate appearances in the big leagues, but. He has seen, um, he has seen, let's see how many he's seen, uh, 648 pitches, uh, and he's whiffed at, uh, about 12.5% of those. So, you know, that's a, that's, I don't know if that's a super predictive sample, but it's 648 as opposed to 171. And in those 648, he's looked like a guy who's going to strike out too much. Um, and if he strikes out too much, and doesn't have a lot of power. And is the right-handed hitter. Really, he's the right-handed hitter. He's right-handed, and he doesn't walk much. Um, he's, he's screwed. Really, <laughs> he's looking like a platoon guy. Plus, he's been really slapping along the ground. So He's been looking um, like a fifth outfielder. Yeah, I guess it's time to move on to Dylan Pompey, at least. <laughs> well, I mean, that's 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 the popular answer. Um, you know, and the, the real answer is, uh, and, you know, I think what they were doing with this, um, with the announcement is, you know, if they, if they just benched Rasmus and, um, and he was a free agent to be, then it could have a little bit of a dulling effect when it comes to signing free agents in the future. Um, you know, if you're a free agent, especially if you're going to sign like a two year deal or something. And you're going to sign it with the Blue Jays and you're going to say, well, you know, you're just going to bench me at some point and not allow me to try and, you know, get the stats I need to go back out and get another free agent deal, um, which is essentially what they've done to, to Rasmus. Um, they've limited his, his upside a little bit on the market. Was, uh, is it but the... by coming out and saying we're doing this because we need to look at some young guys, they're at least – it's almost like helping Rasmus a little bit. They're giving a public statement that Rasmus can point to in negotiations and be like, hey – I could have, you know, had 90 RBI or whatever, you know, some attainable number. Uh, but they bunched me for the last month because, and it wasn't my fault. It was just because they were looking at, uh, at younger guys for the next year and they weren't going to resign. Right. I, well, I, I want to say, I mean, I think this is Rasmus's first, uh, Rasmus's first year of, uh, free agency coming up. I mean, I think when they acquired him from the Cardinals, I want to say, I mean, he was still under team control. For well, I'm not years. necessarily talking about. How Rasmus, um, you know, uh, signed with them. I'm talking about future free agents. Right. No, I mean, I guess what I, I would think is it possible that uh, because of the circumstances that, like, I mean, Toronto could also easily say, well, look, like, he was a guy that we considered a potentially cheap option and it wasn't like, I mean, we, you know, we're bringing you here because we're paying you money because we think you're good, not like a, where I could say, like, it's not a Rasmus situation, I guess. I don't know. Mm. Well, and then then you sort of look at um, contracts and what's going on for next year. And Jose Bautista is really uh, the only veteran under contract for next year um, in that outfield. Melky is going to be a free agent. Colby's gone. Um, so Melky has probably become um, too expensive. I think I would guess that. So I think there's still um, you know a chance for Pompey. 
Now, maybe with Melky, um, I don't really know exactly how it works with the um, uh, compensation, but we made with Melky, they sort of need Melky to play out the string in order to hit some benchmarks in order to get them the draft pick compensation. Um, so I, I think they would they would love to offer Melky a one year uh, the whatever the deal is I forget what it's called but the the um, uh, ten, the tender or whatever yeah they're gonna tender Melky Cabrera an offer where he'll get the one year thirteen million dollar offer but he'll um, want to cash in and he'll want better than that but what's um, what's funny about I think he's gonna be in that sort of Nelson Cruz uh, bucket where not only does he have the the previous PED problems, right? Um, but he'll have a draft pick attached to him. So it's either going to have to be a team like the Yankees, um, who just want to spend and don't care as much about the draft picks, or um, a competitive team that doesn't have um, a high draft pick. So a, a team in the sort of twenty-five through thirty. Um, so, but you know, the A's aren't going to sign him. The Angels' primes they aren't going to sign him. So you start ticking out down through the competitive teams to think about who might sign him. I think he burned uh, his way out of the out of San Francisco, so I doubt they're going to sign him. The Dodgers have way too many outfielders, so there's actually a chance where Melky comes back on a one-year, thirteen million dollar deal, and that would actually fit the Blue Jays really well because with the Bautista and Edwin signings, they have a window of a couple more years. So I think they're um, they're hoping that. Daniel Norris, uh, Aaron Sanchez, or um, uh, <clears throat> Daniel Norris, Aaron Sanchez, or uh, Marcus Stroman. They're hoping that, you know, at least one, if not two of those, turn into front of the rotation guys because they have back of the rotation guys in Burley uh, and Dickey. Um, and I think Hutchinson is sort of a mid rotation guy. So, you know, th- that all of a sudden, if, if, if Stroman steps to the four and is an ace, and if Daniel Norris uh, steps up and is a 2-3 type, then they have a better rotation next year, and they have about the same offense if they, if Melky comes back on a one-year deal. Now, if Melky doesn't come back on a one-year deal, all of a sudden they have two outfield spots to, to fit, and then Dalton Pompey and Anthony Goes are your are your in-pencil starting outfielders um, going into the offseason. So um, I, think they, I think that means to me that they're going to play some Pompey. Um, and they're going to find some way to, to play him, whether it's at DH, um, you know, they could DH Bautista more, um, in order to, you know, keep him from hurting himself, possibly. Um, you know, they're not going to learn too much about playing with playing Reimold or Juan Francisco or whatever. So, um, you know, DH Bautista and play Pompey, Cabrera and goes in the outfield and, and uh, and see if maybe that's going to be what you've got next year. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I was going to say, uh, too, I mean, perhaps it, be- it becomes a case where uh, Toronto becomes a little gun-shy based on those situations with Nelson Cruz, with Kendris Morales, um, with uh, Stephen Drew, where they did they turned down that qualifying offer. And uh, they want the picks, man. They will They will take They'll t- I think they'd really take Melky for a year or the fix. I think they'd be fine with that. I do so, I do think it might be right in general that that makes them gun shy about giving these guys, you know, four for 60 or whatever, giving but, Melky four for 60. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if, yeah, the Blue Jays can, the Blue Jays say, we'll be happy with either outcome. We'll leave it up to Melky kind of thing you're saying. And yeah, if you offer him the one year, $13 million or whatever deal it's going to be. And they say, well, we're happy if he takes it because we want that because it's worth a year. And uh, we are happy if he's not because we get the draft pick. 
Yeah, there's some there's some noise in New York um, uh, among Mets fans that Melky would be a good fit, and I mean, it's possible they definitely need an outfielder. I would rather. <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> I'd rather they sign um, someone that had some pop a little bit more than contact, but um, uh, and, and I, they're right now in a race to see if their their um, their pick is protected. But if their pick is not protected, I think that does um, sort of wrap things up. I wouldn't sign a steroid guy for four or five years um you know to uh <clears throat> i wouldn't do that uh and give up the pick uh if i were the mets but um yeah you don't know there's this the pressure starting to mount on that front office in there and actually to be honest the pressure's really starting to mount in, in toronto so mm-hmm. you know there there could be a crazy thing where the the uh, blue jays signed john lester um and um you know, and keep Melky on a one-year deal and and really go for it. Wow, that would be that would be extremely interesting. Um, I know a couple of uh, fellows in Canada who would be awfully pleased to hear that uh, or see that kind of thing develop. <clears throat> well, uh, and and Pompey, incidentally, I mean, he's say he gets the playing time. Um, I mean, fifteen team, uh, even just like if he's the left side of a platoon. Although I think that would be a mistake. I mean, I I, I would assume you continue to go ghosts as a platoon player and Pompey gets uh, the regular ABs um, just because I mean, I, I think it, I definitely think that I'm, I'm, I'm the type who thinks that if you expose a young player to the bigs and just kind of put him in that platoon role initially, uh, you, you do, you do run the risk at least of uh, stunning his growth against uh, the same handed pitcher. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, some some of the successful development practices are about putting players in the position to succeed. Um, and if you do put them in the in the right side of a platoon, yeah, I mean, it's a balancing thing, right? You're you're costing them um, at bats against lefties um, or the wrong side, the hard side for them, and you're and you're giving them um, a nice cushion for for you putting them in the right position to succeed, you know. Pompey right now, his season would be over though. Yeah. So, um, when you're talking September, I think you can, you know, for a month, you can let him, you know, play against the, the, the handedness that he's more comfortable with. Try to get him to, to hit the ground running. I think this confidence factor and this, you know, handling people at the very beginning is part of, um, what separates certain organizations from other things. And it's also part of what makes it really hard to succeed in a, uh, an extreme ballpark. So if you get a if you get a hitter, if you're the Padres and you call up Ryan Liriano and you want to put him in a position to succeed, you might as well start him at the beginning of like a nine game road streak because um, you don't really want to necessarily uh, put him right in Petco right away. But you have to in the end put him in Petco, and then if he sees a bunch of fly balls die, he starts to feel like maybe he can't make it in the big leagues. And, uh, that confidence factor changes approaches, and in particular with pitchers. I mean, imagine being Colorado and have call up a young. <laughs> I've already given up. I've been called up to Colorado three times. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that does make that does make some sense. It's it's. I think there's a huge balancing act with uh, yeah with player development. So yeah, that's. I think there's a, that's some fair arguments, and it probably is uh, weighs heavily in favor of the fact that Pompey may be yeah platooned as well. Yeah. It- I mean, like, what do you do? I, you've got, like, for for example, when you're the the uh, the Red Sox. I mean, it, it makes sense um, to it makes sense to um, if you have money to go and buy 
um, a, a prospect basically to buy a top prospect like they did with Resnick Castillo because, um, you know, he only costs money. And that's one way that a, um, a team with money can separate themselves from the team without money. The team without money can only pick up guys in the draft um, and, and hope maybe that a guy like Despagne or something uh, works out for cheap. But a team with money can go and basically buy like a top 10 prospect with money. So I think that is why the Red Sox did it. Um, and then, you know, now we're, we're, we're struggling to sort of pick up the pieces about, you know, what happens with Mookie Betts uh, going forward. But, you know, with Victorino out for the year and the team uh, sort of uh, giving Mookie some love and, and talking about watching him in center field this year, um, I think that uh, the most likely outcome is that Mookie does start the rest of the season. Um, and Bradley is, you know, uh, kind of like a defensive replacement, pinch hitter type, um, you know, gives people rest. Uh, Cespedes is an everyday starter because um, they kind of want to see him for next year, I guess. And then uh, right field is Alan Craig, Jackie Bradley, Castillo territory. Um, and uh, they just sort of move them in and out. I don't know what uh, the rubric will be. I would expect. I would expect the uh, Red Sox. I mean, to me, this this the the smartest move I would think for the Red Sox long, uh, rest of well uh, winter and uh, next season, I think is is probably to cut ties with Craig to begin with. I think and and mm-hmm. maybe use the foot thing as an excuse to sit him rest of the season anyway. Well, so if they do the if they if they can find a way to, to, to rest him um, and say, you know, come back in the spring and battle for a job. Um, then it's uh, Cespedes, Betts, uh, Castillo, where uh, Nava and Bradley are your sort of bench bats. That, and that, that's, that's very doable. And that could be a plan going into next year where we say, okay, well, maybe Craig beats out Nava. Um, you know, Victorino pushes somebody somewhere, but... Um, I don't think that they necessarily want to bet too hard on Victorino next year either. So right. it seems like a problem, but these things work themselves out. And, um, you know, I think that other teams would enjoy trading for some of those assets. And the, the Red Sox have a clear need in pitching, um, I would say. I mean, their starting five right now is Buckles, Kelly, De La Rosa, uh, <clears throat> fill in the blank. Al- I mean, Alan I think Webster. I, I like Alan Alan Webster has three legit pitches and just a command issue. So, um, I mean, Webster, De La Rosa, Kelly, Buckles, there's some upside there. But the Workman, Ronaldo, I don't like either of those guys. Right. Um, you know, maybe I, I like Henry Owens a lot. And, you know, he has enough innings to contribute next year. But it still seems like it's an arm short. And maybe you just put Lester back in at the top there um, and push everybody down. And it's and it's uh, basically a very similar uh, rotation as it was, it was last year. But, um I mean, the rest of season projections for those five guys that I mentioned, none of them is is under four ERA, um, and <clears throat> about the same FIP. And actually, most of them are almost five. Uh, so Kelly, De La Rosa, Webster, and Workman all have uh, projected ERAs of about four point eight. Well, well, that seems a little unfair. We like Joe Kelly. <laughs> well. <laughs> All I'm saying is uh, they they have some pieces they can move. Cespedes himself could move. Um, you know, Betts could easily move to a team that wants a second baseman out of him. Um, so, which would seem like a much smarter idea, I would think. 
Yeah, I mean, that seems like it would bring you a pretty decent pitcher back. Yeah. Uh, building something around Betts and Reynaldo or something. So, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe they won't even do that until midseason next year, though. You know, maybe they wait to see what kind of a season it is before uh, before they trade Betts. It's not a problem. It's not really a problem. I mean, it's not a problem until they're competitive and they have an obvious hole and they have to do something about it. I mean, it's like the Cubs. You know, you want to say, oh, well, you know, they don't, they have too many bats. They don't have enough pitchers. Yeah. Well, let's see which of those bats make it, which one of them busts. And if they do finally have too many bats at one point and you're playing an obvious shortstop at third base, um, and then you, then, and then you see we're, we're an arm away from, uh, from something, then you trade, um, you know, Castro or, 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 you know, Alcantara or something. So, um, I mean, they, it's not a problem until, it's a problem. <laughs> say it's a problem yet. I mean, yeah. you have to give the Cubs a lot more time to find pitching um, out there, and to and they and they're in a position. They're in a better position than the Red Sox to find pitching because um, their bats are confidence factor in the National League, right? Yeah, the confidence factor is going to help them when they put a young guy like Hendricks out there, and he gets to pitch against some seven, eight, nine hitters in the National League. Um, so. The the uh, the Cubs and the Red Sox are basically doing the same thing. I mean, you can see it. Mm-hmm. What a sh- and what a shock, considering the similarities in their front offices. And um, <clears throat> I think it's uh, yeah. Uh, as far as the Cubs, I, I'm <clears throat> I'm certainly not in a rush for uh, by any means to see what the Cubs do. I mean, I think, but I think they're uh, they. Kudos to them. It's become such a fun and interesting team to watch. I never thought I'd say that about uh, that about the Cubs. In my lifetime, anyway. And I guess I can't speak after my lifetime. <clears throat> uh, Jock Peterson has started on consecutive days for the Dodgers, and of course it's only a couple of days, but Don Mattingly has also called him to the media the Dodgers' best defensive center fielder. Is that ominous for his playing time for the rest of this month? It's hard to read. I mean, coach speak is sometimes hard to decipher anyway. Yeah, because... Yeah. Uh, because it, it, it says so many things. Also, before um, Peterson came up, he said he's a pinch runner and defensive replacement. Right. Um, so, you know, in that, in a, if you put that to, those two together, you say, oh, oh, he's his best defensive replacement, basically. He's the, he's, he's the, he's the guy who's going to come in um, when, uh, you know, when, when they need, def- when they need defense and when they have a lead. So, uh, you know, that and the four strikeouts, I think, um, do say something. I, I want to check here real quick. Um, the will... Dodgers uh, are sixth in runs uh, for the year um, in the National League. In the last 30 days, uh, they are eighth. So they're they're struggling to score some runs uh, on some level. Um you know, but their their weight runs created is still above average, um, and it's not Matt Kemp's fault. I mean, he's he's hit right, <laughs> and he's I mean, he took a seat for one of them. And he, of course, he's in left field, but then Yasuo Puig is certainly not a guy that they're going to go. bench. That's the problem. I mean, that that's the only guy that I could see them benching. And the reason I mention that is because the Dodgers are have 18 home runs in the last month, and that's 12th in the league, uh, down there with the Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and Padres. So. Um, you know, and then that coincides perfectly with Puig's power outage, um, and could give you, uh, enough cover 
to say, you know, we're going to, you know, try Peterson here, but it's it, not my team. I mean, that's not how my team runs. My team runs at, you know, Peterson, you're up here to get a taste, right. uh, you know, you're going to strike out too much anyway. And, uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to play you in late in games. Maybe you'll help us get back into some, some games we shouldn't get back into, but uh, you know, I've got a guy here. Um, I can't be, I can't be worried about Puig's power, quote unquote power outage. I mean, overall, he's been a he's been a four win player. His four, he's four, he has two years in a row. Yeah, he's forty six percent better than league average at the bat. And and everyone was saying that you know he couldn't he couldn't uh, adjust with the with the walk rate or whatever, and he totally blew that one out of the water. I mean, I saw it coming because in two in twenty thirteen in the second half of the season. Nobody improved their uh, O swing better more than than Yasiel Puig, so you know he looks like you know and people want to put him in that box of toolsy, you know, instinctual player, raw, you know, unrefined. But uh, dude's got 11% walk rate, man. So you know, I think uh, I think uh, he's he's uh, I think right now what's happening is that you know he's struggling not to try and expand the zone. And go after pitchers, pitches that pitchers want him to go after. Um, so to some, to, you know, his O swing is now 10% lower than it was last year. Um, and he's, he's just not going to swing at them. And the pitchers just keep throwing it out there a little bit. And that's why his walk rate's up. And that might be why his power's down because he's not reaching, you know, he's not trying to like get out there and swing at some things that he swung at last year. So, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Yasiel Puig can take a ball outside the zone deep. Mm-hmm. But it's probably better for him long term if he doesn't swing at that ball. Yeah. So you know, I still my projection for next year for Puig is about two ninety, um, twenty two homers, uh, maybe five seven stolen bases, and uh, you could you could pump all that up in a good year up to twenty five and ten, um, you know, even beyond that really because he's so he's so young so. Anyway, I, you know, a lot of this goes out the window when you're just trying to win a division. And they could say, but are they going to say, no, we've got this young guy that we're a little bit worried about, and we're going to go with this younger guy who has four picks <laughs> in his first six plate appearances. And that's really the, the way we're going to get out of this. <laughs> so I, I doubt it. Maybe you see Crawford uh, play a couple games uh, that he shouldn't, uh, maybe against lefties. Maybe they just try to get Crawford in there because Crawford is hot. But um uh yeah, Peterson I don't think is going to get a lot of playing time. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's more yeah, it's, it does seem like it's more of a chance just to get him a couple of starts and then say, "Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that, buddy." Yeah. <laughs> uh the Mets have told Juan Lagares to run more often basically and uh because they have viewed him for a long time to be a player with plus speed who has not used it very often and obviously speed has been a pretty big contributing factor uh as far as his uh, UZR is concerned, his range in center field, and obviously combine that with the fact that he just is, uh, I mean, such a smart player defensively, um, and just is really adept out there. And they've they've basically told him to use that speed more often, uh, and uh, it's resulted in some some really nice fantasy returns here in the last few we- couple of weeks. I looked him up, for instance, in a in a league uh, in the league I'm in, and I'm like, wow, where did these stolen bases come from? And that led me to find out the news note. And that led me to see, for instance, uh, I think he was in Carl DeVries' uh, <clears throat> latest Where Were uh, I don't think it mentioned that factor specifically, but the stolen bases, I think, play. This is, I think this is kind of one of those surprise stolen base sources potentially 
um, considering that it's worked out so far. I mean, we're talking like five stolen bases in the past week, uh, which is not easy to come by, I think. Uh, so, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at it, it's pretty remarkable actually, because uh, he had one, he had zero stolen base attempts in, but he had one stolen base attempt and he didn't make it in in March. I mean, in April. Uh, in May, he had zero stolen base attempts all May. Oh, he had one in the in the final day of the month and didn't make it. Uh, June, he had two stolen, no, one stolen base and then was hurt for a bit. And then in July, he had one stolen base, uh, and then the one of the one on the last day of the month. So one at the beginning of the month, one at the end of the month. So basically, he goes a month between stolen base attempts. And then since eight twenty nine, he's had uh, five attempts all successful. So you know, it is. I think it's actually um, it's kind of weird that we know about it. Uh, but, um, I think it's, and it's kind of weird that they would ask him to do that from a real life standpoint, because it doesn't add that much value, um, unless he's successful all the time. Um, but, um, for whatever reason, uh, and maybe this is a Terry Collins driven thing, or maybe it's a CD Alderson driven thing, but for whatever reason, that's kind of been, I mean, remember their, their fascination, their interest was in starting, uh, and this was Terry, I guess this was a Terry Collins mandate or not a mandate, but I mean, it was his, kind of his directive in saying that Eric Young Jr. was his front runner to, to lead off for the team going into this season because of the dynamics he offered offensively. And basically it's because he can run. <laughs> yeah. uh, that seems to be something that they think adds a lot more value than I guess data has so far told us that really it hasn't. Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, Ligaris is obviously a super flawed player, and people thought he wasn't going to make it because of his terrible play discipline. Doesn't make a ton of contact uh, and doesn't have a ton of power. But, uh, you know, I think the defense is real. We've got uh, almost a, a season and a half of it, and just it really passes the eye test. Um, yes, I would definitely agree with that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, from fantasy, uh, let's say, you know, five stolen bases. Let's give him that for the month. Even though the month isn't over yet, um, we just have to we have to regress him to, to you know his previous uh, work. So five a month would be uh, you know if it was attempts maybe twenty five stolen bases next year, um, and he's showing that he can hit uh, five or six home runs a year. So you know now you're talking about uh, basically Leonis Martin um, next year. So a, uh, a very cheap alternative. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, he will be cheaper than Leonis Martin. The one thing I'd caution is that um, this 284 batting average comes with the 348 Babbitt. And, right. I mean, he's had some high ones in the minors, but he's also had some real low ones. So, If um, he puts the ball on the ground, which he's done about 45 to 50% of the time, uh, I mean, you know, you give yourself some. It's a little bit higher. But, like, look at your Zips rest of season projection. 264 batting average with a 330. That's about where I'd put him for a season, 260. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, not quite Leonis Martin because he's – oh, actually, Martin's having some trouble there too. But um, I think of Martin a little bit more as a 280 player, maybe if he only plays against righties. But um, uh, Ligaris, uh, he's a right-handed hitter, but he's making it work. And then 260, uh, 267, 25 next year, I might, might say something like that. Yeah, and that's, that's fair. And it, uh, in terms of – I mean, yeah, the, the OBP I think is something that's going to really – it will be a deciding factor in, in that kind of. It's a good thing that Legaris plays defense really well. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> how they? Yeah, because 
it is a little bit hard. You can't steal bases from the eighth spot in the order, not that many. So then you would have to, you know, revise it down to 20 or something. And I think you're really going to start him at the top of the order when he has a 290 OBP. So, um, no, I, I would just, well, uh, it's the Mets. So far, I have now been convinced that that's a factor. I mean, Curtis, uh, Curtis Granderson led off for that team for what, a couple of months. And, uh, I mean, he walks, but he also can't hit for what rhymes with hit. And, uh, again, Young was the leadoff hitter for a little while. Uh, so, meet the Mets. Could be looking at the leadoff hitter next year. What a weird leadoff hitter. That <laughs> I mean, he's, be. he's been leading off uh, for basically since he's been a regular, since they made him a regular. He's the leadoff hitter. Well, he's been the leadoff hitter for them for the past week and a half. <clears throat> uh, week plus oh wow that's it yeah no he was the leadoff hitter for them at about half of may also so maybe not entirely uh maybe it's a kind of a platoon leadoff hitter thing or something that they consider doing st louis has called up a fellow named xavier scruggs and uh what i think is only interesting about it, i mean he has a lot of power uh media is not a guy that's you can be real excited about about fancy terms. At least that's my impression. Um, profile kind of looks interesting, except for the fact that there's a lot of strikeout that looks like in his game, and the fact that he didn't make it to the Triple A level until it was his age 26 season. Uh, he'll be 27 actually next month. Uh, or I'm sorry, later this month. So uh, th it's kind of. Yeah, he's an old guy. Yeah, kind of telling, and he's never really put up a great batting average in the minor leagues, but he's getting a start today, and it's get, he's getting against a right-hander at, at a time that Matt Adams is struggling, and uh, Scruggs is a right-handed hitter. I think that's kind of odd timing um, because I – Yeah, I was just going to say that I see him as a platoon uh, partner for, for Adams. He, yeah, that makes perfect sense for the rest of this month. But I think it's kind of strange to go ahead and throw Scruggs in unless they just wanted to give him the start right away. But it's like this is a team that's just taken the lead in the division. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind Adams, of an odd thing. Adams has a 318, 347, 500 line against righties. So. Yeah, that seems that seems like the odd move, I think, to play him immediately against a right-hander. Scruggs, I mean. That's what I think is – it's kind of – I think I, I hate to say that that's worrisome about Adams because it seems to make absolutely no sense. But uh, I guess maybe once Scruggs goes Javier Baez on them, maybe they'll quickly reconsider. But um, does he uh, – is this an NL-only flyer for you? Obviously at most, but is it – I mean – If that, he was a lefty, I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a righty, I guess he has that platoon opportunity. Um, but you know, it's the wrong side of the platoon. So it's a couple starts a week. Right. Um, it's weird that they're starting against righty now. I guess he could get hot. Um, I, I think he's a warm body league guy. I don't think he's, yeah. you know, other than that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, moving to some rotation stuff. Miguel Gonzalez is a pitcher who, first of all, Miguel Gonzalez has been like on a ridiculous tear and, and, uh, you know, basically, I did perhaps even a little more than Eno. Uh, pooped on him for a good portion of the season as, as I waited for, as we waited for Kevin Gaussman to join that rotation. And now, obviously, it's played out that way. But uh, Gonzalez has a 338 ERA despite components, an FIP of 493, uh, probably more telling uh, an XFIP of 448 and an SIERA of 436. And so clearly looks like 
considering he pitches in Baltimore, he's got a 40 plus percent ball, uh, fly ball rate, that uh, he is pitching well above his head. And, uh, but lately he's, I mean, he just continues to kind of get better as far as the results go. He pitched a complete game shutout the other night. Uh, I'm sorry. It was last night against Cincinnati, uh, struck out eight, walked only one, allowed only four hits. And, uh, but, Previously, seven innings of one-run ball, six and a third innings. And that granted, well, and granted, the opponents, Minnesota, Chicago Cubs. I think partially that's the play in play here. But uh, Toronto, he blanked. Uh, well, held them to one run in Toronto, uh, and pitched really well against the Angels a few starts ago with seven and two-thirds innings of two-run ball, despite walking four. This is a long stretch of uh, really good results, despite not. Uh, two impressive peripherals and and uh reason I became intrigued by him is because I've mentioned this before I'm desperate for pitching in tout wars and it's not for the sake of winning but for the sake of ma- remaining clear of Eno who's in the last in the standings and I hated to bring that up but you say it all the time so oh. all right. <laughs> and um he helped my face again he helped me to uh o- re uh, to overtake you in ERA I moved out of last place in that category which I would like to say, first of all, I would like to say that I was not in last place in ERA, and that was only like a month, a month and a half ago, and I was in like the middle of the pack. Like I had, I had a good seven, eight, at one point, like maybe nine points in ERA, and that was only a month, month and a half ago. Things just totally went to poopy for me uh, in my pitching staff. So I do not blame me; I blame them. But now I'm scrapping with the likes of Eno for uh, ERA points and things like that, and. Uh, the likes of me. Well, and Gonzalez is what, uh, I mean, I was like, you know, I, I keep dismissing this guy, uh, but the starts have been ridiculous. Well, the starts have been pretty good lately. I happen to be the fortunate beneficiary of uh, his complete game shutout this week because it's his first week on my roster. But, I mean, I put him ahead of someone who dropped Clay Buckholes, and Clay Buckholes has had a few, a few couple of good really good recent starts and just as overall obviously looked like he's kind of improved. Now my disdain for Buckholes might automatically put him below a player like Gonzalez, but typically I just don't trust a player like Gonzalez even more because I don't trust what I see. So, uh, but in this instance, I looked at it and, and uh, I saw high infield fly percentage, infield fly ball percentages consistently. We talked before about how if that's a skill, he has, he has four, he has four pitches that, uh, at least in terms of results, have generated 25% fly, infield fly balls or more, basically. Uh, and a couple of them significantly more than that. Uh, and he's done this now with a, a double-digit percentage in infield fly balls for three straight years, and it has steadily increased. Um, if there's a way to include infield fly ball percentages, uh, I mean, it's probably a really tough thing to predict as far as it, but like if a guy continues to show it, uh, and that could be a factor somehow in XFIP. Um, I mean, he would seem to be kind of the, the, the K, I mean, besides a Johnny Cueto, I mean, we're talking about that, like Cueto, we know is a good pitcher and could probably succeed uh, a little bit without that skill, but Gonzalez seems to rely heavily on it. Uh, oh, God, I should have realized, I should have seen this before. He's got rise. He's got a rise on his four seamer. Really? Yeah, he's uh, the average four seamer has a vertical movement number uh, of about nine, and anything above eleven is uh, showed up in in my work with uh, Sam Fold said that uh, 
there were all these pitchers that had rise and that those were very difficult. And, you know, you think of Sean Doolittle and how his, his ball, it doesn't really go up, but it, it finishes, um, up, it finishes above where you think it's, it would finish. Um, so, uh, you know, Miguel Gonzalez, one of these rise ball guys. And, um, I think that's actually a really great combo with a splitter. So, um, yeah, because you know, you're talking two different directions completely, right? Right. And they both look like fastball. So you've got two things that come out of the hand, um, you know, looking very similar, uh, in terms of release, uh, over the top, no, no over the side stuff. Um, you know, the seams even come out tumbling the same way. And then, uh, one turns into 92 miles an hour sort of finishing up on, you know, up into you. And then, um, the other one turns into 85 at your shoe tops. So, um, I mean, that's, I wonder if, yeah, I, I've got some more research to do on this stuff in the off season, but I think there's probably certain, uh, uh, pitch facets that are stronger in combination than others, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you're a sinker change guy, right? Like, um, like McCarthy. Um, what you've got then is, no, not McCarthy. McCarthy's, uh, sinker curve. Uh, but there are, there are guys out there that sinker change. Uh, Rick Porcello, Rick, Rick Porcello was a sinker change guy, right? And, um, it was working for him at like a sort of reduced level. He went out and got the curveball. Um, and he said that just changed everything because it changed eye levels, changed, uh, he had something that broke in a completely different direction. And now, hitters couldn't get out there and just try and poke things the other way. So I think probably of the sort of combinations you can have out there, sink or change is not the best because they both go in the same direction. And if that's really your two best pitches, then people will just hang out over the outside of the plate and try to go the other way. Um, on the flip side, I think there are probably some strong combinations like a rising four-seamer and a splitter. Uh, where you just have these two pitches that are just going in different directions, different velocities, and look very similar. So if you look at sort of um, Alex Cobb, he has a very similar situation where um, he has the four seam, the sinker, and the split. And uh, between those three pitches, he would be fine, I think. Uh, but he also throws the curve. You know, And the only thing I can see that Miguel Gonzalez is doing differently is throwing the curve a little bit less recently. It's not a great curveball in terms of outcomes. I mean, it doesn't get good whiffs or, or grounders. Uh, but um, it is a big old curveball, and I think he's probably just using it a little bit more as a show-me every once in a while as opposed to, like, a regular pitch. Um, and, yeah, his slider isn't great, but he, he might be a model for Gossman where his slider gets 11% whiffs um, and, and bends in the other direction and everything else and, and just makes people think uh, maybe this is a slider. So uh, I think Gossman should be watching Miguel Gonzalez right now. Uh, he might learn something out of him. I'm watching him even when he showers. Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, I think like the the steady infield. No, but seriously, I am. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't mean that part. Sorry. <laughs> the infield, yeah, the, I mean, the, the fastball has gotten uh, infield fly balls probably at a ridiculous rate this season, 37%. Um, but steadily, that's been like a, the one constant, I think. Well, one of the two constants, I guess, because um, the two-seamer has kind of consistently gotten them for him, uh, or at least that's what the classification is. But regardless, flat fastballs for him, and he, I mean, he relies heavily on fastball. Um, but curveball has also been getting generating infield fly balls, and that seems to kind of be the opposite of what I would expect. 
Uh, yeah, but check this out. Um, just on that rise ball thing, I just uh, pulled up my um, <clears throat> my my piece of sampled, and uh, someday uh, it will arrive, and <laughs> I will be able to talk. Come on, man. Jeez. Uh, okay, so here it is. Um, the the guys the the top um, the top quarter of four seamers. So the, the, the top part of the top quarter of four seamers in terms of vertical movement um, averaged 11 percent, 11, um, 11 sort of inches of vertical movement. We'll just call it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's your rise ball. Uh, and, and Miguel Gonzalez has an 11.1. So he belongs on this list. Um, those guys that had that um, that uh, it had a 5 percent pop up percentage, which is infield fly ball rate times fly ball rate. Uh, they had a 5%. And then the sample, uh, which averaged around 9 inches of movement, had a 3.7. So definitely rise balls lead to infill flies. So this is definitely something, if you're looking at a pitcher and you can't figure out what it is, uh, look at his, uh, why he would be doing so well. Look at his uh, four-seamer, his vertical movement on his four-seamer. Uh, let me just name some guys that show up on this that have good pop-up percentages. Um uh, and you know, part of this is, is their vertical movement on their fit, their fastball. Drew Smiley has a great pop-up percentage and is at the top of this list. Sean Doolittle, Travis Wood, Danny Duffy. Uh, these are a lot of guys that we talk about that we can't figure it out. Jared Weaver is of course on this list. Jared Weaver is the patron saint of this list. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, you got, uh, Justin Verlander, even reduced Justin Verlander. Wei-Yin Chen, um, is all over this. Um, Nick Martinez, Hector Santiago uh, has a rise ball. Uh, and then Chris Young uh, was part of the reason for, for doing the research in the first place. So mm-hmm. um, these are a lot of the guys where you're kind of like, I don't get it. Uh, and that's <laughs> part of it. It's um, it's a ball, you know, as Sam Fold described it, it's a ball where you're just sure it's going to be right there, at the, you know, at the knees or at the belt. And then it just goes right above your bat. And that's exactly what you would expect out of an infield fly ball. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's and it's interesting. I'm, I'll be excited to read uh, when you start to get uh, a lot more data, as far as like you said, like you, uh, which kind of pitch combinations uh, tend to be more successful. Because I think that's going to start to help. I think that'll be one of the ways that'll really start to help folks who have trouble, like kind of understanding. Well, uh, and the reason I think uh, say this is Mike Podors, or I know his his blog today was on Carlos Carrasco and how excited he's been that he's finally kind of pitching. Uh, to the components uh, that he's long kind of forecast is seeing, but like, there's a lot more that goes on this, I think for a different reason, but there's a lot like uh, if a, if a pitcher is putting out the components that say he should be better, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to get better. And if you find the reasons that he should be better and then you can know whether he's going to do them or not. And if, for instance, if, like you said, I mean, if, if, well, as you've kind of alluded, they, uh, that if there's some sort of pitch combination, uh, that is kind of consistently disallowing them from success or keeping them from success. I think that that's uh, it's going to it's just going to make it harder for them to get to that that place. Whereas you know Gonzalez seems to be defying expectations. It'll give us, I think, a lot more insight into these components, the component ERA numbers and stuff like that. That I think would be a really exciting development for fantasy purposes as well, because that could cha- totally change the landscape of player projections. I think that's something to keep an eye on definitely in the near future. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could you could have looked at at Rick Porcello for a while and been like, oh, 
there's something you know he, he he's not in you might have you might have been you know it might have just been said oh it's babip you know it's babip and it's what well, i mean it was easy to it was easy it's easy to play the defense card on the tigers and it's understandable right, exactly. because there is there is some bad defense there but like no amount of bad defense can make like a player that much consistently worse than his i don't think than his uh, than his components like it's just, I mean, consistently to put up sub four components and it consistently put up mid four ERAs seems like uh, a huge stretch because uh, I, I don't see bad fortune being that big a factor <clears throat> on that for that length long of a time, or at least you're the unluckiest guy in the world and you should probably do something, you know, take out some insurance policies or something as well. Uh, Chris Young, speaking of, <laughs> might not make his next scheduled start. And uh, I think only because this is to me, the, the one interesting thing about this news note is he's really not had like it's not like he's had like a long string of bad starts. Um, it is a it is a critical period for the Mariners, but he's only had two kind of rough starts. And uh, it legitimately seems to be a thing where Seattle maybe is looking to head this off at the pass because they say, wow. We've ridden the Chris Young train all season. We knew it was going to come to an end sooner or later. Uh, but not just that, but not just to say, like, because he's outlived his usefulness, but because he might be truly running out of gas considering. I mean, when's the last time he pitched this many innings uh, in in three straight seasons combined? <laughs> uh, uh, that I think that, uh, I mean, th this seems like a, a really good, there's a, it seems like a really good chance that they're going to replace him in the, in the very near future. Uh, and Taiwan Walker, right. <laughs> seems like a good candidate to take that spot. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of, you know, in terms of pitching mix, um, I'm not even going to quote the numbers because they're not that they're really unsexy. And he's really just a fastball slider guy right now. But, um, you know, you mean young. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, they could just say, you know, thank you for your, for your, uh, you know, the, the, uh, <clears throat> well, it's funny actually, because once you park adjust what he's done, he's, he's been only worth, uh, just under a win. <laughs> uh, but that's because it's FIP and stuff. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, a three, four, six, uh, one, two, oh, you know, three, four, six ERA, one, two, oh, uh, 12 wins, seven losses. I think he's been worth, I mean, you know, I'm not going to break anybody's minds to say that FIP war is not perfect. So right. in this situation, um, you can give him a little bit more credit than one war. But uh, in any case, I, I, you know, I talked to him about this. I, I might've been rude. I, I feel like maybe I, I was stupid about it, but I was like, um, uh, are you going to Jamie Moyer it up? <laughs> <laughs> and now, and I thought maybe I thought he was older than he was. I I thought he was like 38, 39, but he's 35. And that might've been a rude thing to say, but he laughed about it. Um, and he said, good God, no, he said, uh, you know, at some point, uh, he'll want to hang out with his kids more. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Jamie Moyer is a bad, is a terrible father. <laughs> Not I'm being and I'm being totally facetious there because uh, well besides the fact that it was obvious that I was being facetious but he's got this rep as a huge family guy and stuff like that so and Jamie Moyer is a heck of a guy for for uh, from everything I've read so but anyway yeah 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 I say uh, that only because no. he's a part of my 2008 world champion Phillies and I will forever remember that team as the only thing that has given me joy in my baseball life. <laughs> well, uh, Young is the is a is a rise ball guy and. Uh... Let's look at his infield fly ball. 
you know, infield fly balls is not, I would rather have a pop up percentage, which is infield fly balls times fly balls, because, um, you kind of, kind of see it a little bit with Anderson Simmons, because Anderson Simmons doesn't hit a lot of fly balls, so his infield fly ball rate looks higher because he doesn't hit a lot of fly ball. Now that's, uh, you're saying, I mean, um, sometimes when I start to throw all these, I think like, uh, when it shows up in the player page, like infield fly ball percentage is strictly a percentage of his fly balls that end up as pop-ups, correct? Yes. And I would, I would, I've always, that's what I always thought. I would prefer to see it separated to an infield fly ball and an outfield fly ball and just make them complete separate, separate, completely separate yeah. categories. Yeah. How many of his, how many of his balls in play end up in the inf, uh, infield pop-ups and how many of his balls yeah. and plays end up in the outfield? Yeah, and uh, we I've seen I've read a couple cogent analyses that uh, come to the same conclusion. Also, if you do like year to year correlations, IFFB has a bad year to year correlation, but pop up percentage, PU percentage, which is FB uh, percentage times IFFB percentage, um, that one has a good year to year correlation um, among pitchers. So it really does look like a skill. If you look at Chris Young, my God, fifteen percent. Um, with a with a ton of fly balls, he is he's definitely a pop up meister. And in fact, this is one of his worst years for pop ups. So, um, you know, he's a, he's the pop up guy. He's the guru for that. Part of it's, um, you know, the fact that he releases the ball so much closer than everybody, uh, considering he's six ten or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, part of it is the fact that he has rise on his fastball, and uh, and it always ends up above their bats. So. That's uh, something to look for in, in um, guys. You know, I, I kind of want to jump over to Shoemaker real quick because <clears throat> uh, Shoemaker is, is making the most out of a bad fastball, and I want to see um, if this is a part of what's going on with him. Okay, well, I will try to I will try to fill in some filler by saying that Arizona is going to a six-man rotation, it sounds like, and Randall Delgado is supposed to make a start today. Ooh, Delgado showed up. Um, yeah, it's Shoemaker's uh, not a rise ball guy, so um, not not uh, not getting a lot of pop ups. Um, there's a there's a chance he's a rise ball guy, but it's not turning into pop ups yet. So we'll have to see if he can make that a skill. Sam Fold told me that uh, mostly Matt Shoemaker is all elbows and knees. <laughs> so uh, when you, you you can't really pick up the fastball, but if people start picking up the fastball, I think he'll be a little bit worse off for it in the future. But yeah, Rand, well, as you were saying, Randall Delgado might be one of these guys. Well, Delgado actually showed up in my uh, query for multiple pitches, um, where he has multiple pitches that are above average by by pitch type. So he also, uh, had, I mean, he has a, a fly ball rate of, with the exception of a, a period with the Braves where he had a fly ball rate below thirty percent, but he's had a fly ball rate of about forty percent throughout the majors, and then combine that with an infield fly ball rate of around ten percent um, in his career. I mean, it would suggest that he might be a pop-up guy as well. Well, uh, you want to look for 5%. <clears throat> Anything close to 5% is good. So he's uh, actually about sort of four. Like a okay. 4% guy, and the league average is around three, uh, three and a half, three point seven. 3.7. So <clears throat> it, yeah, that's another thing about pop-up percentage. It may be a skill, but the, the variance is pretty small. You know what I mean? Yeah. The difference between a really good one and a really bad one is kind of small. You're, I mean, you're probably you're dealing with a lot of batted balls, so that I mean, that seems that would seem to make a lot more sense. I mean, just listen to me talk about the you know a good one's five percent and a bad one and a regular one's fourteen. It's four percent. So, um, but uh, any case, uh, Delgado uh, has 
multiple pitches. Uh, right now, they're working in terms of whip. He's he's actually always had, or you know, for his career, he has uh, an above average whip percentage, but it hasn't really turned into a lot of strikeouts. Yeah, he stinks. <laughs> I mean, he might stink. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there be there are people out there that'll that that'll give quicker uh, quicker you know, snarkier answers and say he stinks. But uh, <laughs> I see a change with 22% whiff rate, a slider with a 21% whiff rate, and a curve with a 10% whiff rate. Um, so there's potential. I don't know. That seems like a lot better than he stinks. Right. Uh, you know, I guess let me see what the, the, the fastball. Fastball is up to, well, he's been playing out of the bull, playing it out of the bullpen for a while, but it's up to 93 this year. Yeah. But it's it is I think it's that has to be bullpen fueled. But There's the, some rise on that fastball. I mean, ten and a, ten and a half percent vertical movement. I mean, there might there might be some credence to this idea that he's a rise ball guy. But um, you, I'd rather he was over eleven percent eleven on that vertical movement. Right. Uh, and I'd rather he had you know a little bit stronger uh, pickup uh, pop up percentage uh, over his history. But. <clears throat> I mean, they traded for him. They wanted him in that deal. It seems maybe it seems like he's a guy that has such a variety of just like above average skills that he needs to figure out the, like kind of the best way to mix it. Yeah, and you could make the argument that going to the bullpen uh, could have helped him refine that if um, you know if his numbers in the bullpen had been better. <laughs> I mean, I think going to the bullpen helped Carlos Carrasco a little bit um, in terms of. Um, you know, reducing the usage of his four seam and um, and, and sort of refining uh, and, and refining some of his command um, and, and finding out which pitches he had better command of. So, yeah. um, you know, it can work for people. I don't know. Uh, Delgado just, I mean, nothing is ever not, you know, in terms of like the luck stats, nothing has ever come together at the right time for him. Yeah. He's had years where he had a good batting average on balls in play and gave up uh, almost two homers per nine innings. And then he had a year where he had the best ground ball rate of his career um, and uh, couldn't strike anybody out. I mean, it's just like, and, and no, walked walked the ballpark. So, I mean, it's like he's he's searching for something. But to say that he sucks and not um, sort of acknowledge that he has a little bit of upside in terms of pitching mix. I mean, Steamer... Uh, has him only down for nine innings, but they have him for a three six two ERA and a one two six WHIP, uh, with eight and a half strikeouts per nine. So um, there's definitely <clears throat> there's definitely a potential the potential for something there then. Yeah, but uh, you know, and he's pitching in San Diego, so um, that's probably happening pretty soon. If you want to uh, pick him up, better pick him up now. <laughs> <laughs> At I least mean, not like. When we're recording the podcast, not when you're listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, watch that game. Uh, see how he does. Uh, it'll be hard to project him out to his next start because if they're doing a six-man rotation or not, you don't know. Uh, but uh, he could be a good spot starter in certain leagues. Yeah. Um, Eno, also with the uh, the Swami glasses on uh, or the Swami hat, uh, says Casey Jansen uh, will not be the closer for the rest of the season. It turns out to be true, at least um, somewhat. I mean, uh, perhaps a name only Jansen is, and he may get the next save opportunity, as the news suggests. But uh, overall, uh, basically it's interesting that Casey Jansen, having been well-rested, having had a couple of days off, did not appear in, in Toronto's last save situation, in which uh, Aaron Sanchez, which was Eno's favorite uh, 
upcoming pickup for that spot uh, turn out to be the guy who got it. And uh, there has also been a piece in the National Post that says uh, the Blue Jays would look to get Sanchez some two-inning saves uh, this month, which is not a big reason to target him, but the combination of the fact that the, they also maybe start to start to have viewed Jansen as less reliable in that role as the season has worn on. Uh, that makes Sanchez, uh, basically, if you didn't stash him at this point, is a guy to pick up if you're if you're desperately searching for Susan and saves. No, I mean, I, I, I am all for it. I just don't know why his manager today said that Jansen would get the save chance tonight. Saving so. some face or making the making the veteran look good, I guess. Uh, well, I'm. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. There's not not a, a reasonable uh, immediate explanation for that. Other well, than to... Here's one. Um, he's not quite in the Rasmus situation where uh, an extra save wouldn't help him some, uh, but he is a free agent uh, next year. So, um, and this is the team that we started off the podcast talking about how they just um, sat their, uh, you know, their, their current center fielder in order to take a look at young guys. So, uh, he can say what he likes about Sanchez getting the, the, the uh, opportunity tonight. But, I mean, uh, Jansen getting the opportunity tonight, but he's given Sanchez the last two. And if he gives Jansen one and gives Sanchez the next two, I want to own Sanchez. So I think Sanchez, I mean, we missed the boat on Quackenbush. I mean, you didn't. Uh, I'm just saying in terms of right now, uh, Quackenbush is owned. Um, Jansen's, uh, Sanchez is the only guy out there that's owned a little bit less often. And, uh, and then beyond that, if we're going to try and be uh, get ahead of next week's rush, um, I guess Tazawa in Boston um, has to be considered uh, a possibility. Wehara is a free agent, I believe, and um, he is really tired and um, not pitching very often and uh, not pitching as awesomely as it was before. So uh, I think that Tazawa is an interesting pickup. Yeah, I, uh, that's that's an astute recommendation as well. I think that's uh, definitely something we just look for. And then uh, also fitting that category, uh, well, not that category, but uh, the category you brought up on Tuesday of the starting pitcher eligible folks uh, who are uh, going to be in relief roles. San Francisco called up Mike Kickham, uh, left-hander. Think he uh, looks like a similar possibility for that? I guess. I mean, <clears throat> my I. If you didn't hear the sigh, it was there. The, I like Hickam, uh, but just from talking to beat writers and um, people around the Giants, they really uh, don't think that um, that he has the stuff to to really succeed. <clears throat> then that you know, and he, he's coming off of a four year in AAA, um, which would be kind of his second uh, four year AAA. So. Um, you know, despite the fact that, uh, you know, he has, uh, you know, three pitches, you're only going to see uh, two of them. He's going to be fastball slider, you know, maybe up to 91 coming out of the pen. But uh, he's not that funky of a, of, a, of a release. And there's two lefties in front of him. Not quite the same situation as Finnegan, who only has Bueno in front of him. Uh, kick him as Javier Lopez and Jeremy Affel in front of him. So. Uh, I, I don't think he'll he'll he has as easy a road to holds as Finnegan does. Fair enough, and certainly even behind, uh, say a, a Norris who is just uh, a better pitcher. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Even though, I mean, there are a couple of left-handers ahead of him, but uh, if you had to pick one between the two, it would definitely be Norris because the skills are better. Yeah. Okay, uh, for the Cardinals, Michael Waka. Michael Waka, Waka, Waka. Stress reaction, his shoulder activated to start Thursday. He's been out for about three months. Um, any concern about his performance rest of the season? I would think not. Uh, I mean, but uh, maybe they look to piggyback some guys with him since they have the numbers to do it. Yeah, maybe Marco Gonzalez is his, uh, his backup plan or something. But, um, yeah, I don't uh, – I love Waka to death. Uh, and he's only gotten better this year. Yeah, yeah. Very nice to see for fantasy owners because it was this. I don't want to say this news happened suddenly, but it was uh, an uncertainty because they were go- Cardinals originally came into Thursday, uh, and only a couple of days ago were planning to start one of Marco Gonzalez or Tyler Lyons, and it was going to be Gonzalez today until they were confident that Waka was ready for activation. That's that's good for fantasy owners the rest of the season, especially those in head to head leagues in that championship period. In, in keeper leagues, he's you know it is a weird uh, injury, and people will harp on that and talk about how weird it is, and also mention that it's a shoulder and shoulders suck. But it's not a rotator cuff uh, labrum injury, as far as I know. Right. So, right. Um, I mean, I know that other pitchers have had similar situations, and it's gotten bad. Like Jake Peavy's was a bit of a stress reaction shoulder thing. And he ended up having to have like pins put into his shoulder. So uh, let's hope that doesn't happen for Waka. But um, otherwise, uh, you know, he has a perfect pitching mix, uh, great command, uh, velocity. I mean, he's he's a great young pitcher. Yeah, I would I would agree. Uh, Desmond Jennings has experienced some knee soreness that originally eliminated from him from the lineup this past Friday. It says he has felt no improvement in it since um, and the Rays have been uh, not real forthcoming about it because they don't really have to be, but uh, that's that's potentially kind of ominous rest of the season, something to keep an eye on, uh, especially since now that they have the depth to not to take any risks with him. Houston hopes and thinks that George Springer with a strained quadricep will be back this month. Um, I think if it gets too much later into the month, they, it seems unlikely that they would even bother, but uh, that's, Something to keep in mind uh, because the pop was definitely showing up here in, in great quantities before he hit the disabled list. And on the way out, another dis- this is a disappointment uh, is that Gar- Carlos Gomez originally he is, was experiencing some wrist soreness. Uh, originally, they were hoping he, they'd have him back with a week within a week. Now he's been shut down for at least a week, and of course he'll have to have a little bit of baseball activity for a day or two probably before he even can be considered to be put back in the lineup for a team that is uh, desperately kind of clinging to playoff hopes, not clinging to playoff hopes, but uh, desperately fighting for that playoff spot and the top spot in that, in the NL central. But uh, Gerardo, 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 Para, Gerardo, Gerardo, Gerardo Depardieu uh, looks like he was going to get some playing time in the next uh, week plus. Uh, so that could be a factor for those in, in leagues that, uh, where maybe you need a couple of stolen bases and a home run or something like that, and you get fortunate enough for that to happen in a, in a, in a league where you can make daily pickups and daily lineup changes and things like that. Also, Ryan Braun is having a kid, uh, and uh, so that's definitely good for playing time there in, in Walkie Outfield in the short term. Sterling Castro, high ankle sprain, seems like he's done for the rest of the season. That's also disappointing, but it just means that Javier Baez or Arizmendi Alcantara, I mean, basically those guys should be back in the infield. Both, Well, they'll both be in the infield now, and Baez, I guess, is the candidate to play shortstop. I would think that Alcantara is a better play there, but I guess because um, it, 
Alcantara's future lies at shortstop or at second base potentially that they would just uh, kind of leave him there. I don't know. I think that he looks like an infielder. I mean, I yeah. think that, um, and I don't want to talk too much about like body size, but like, you know, he he, he you know, he he has the instincts, the the athleticism of a, of an infielder. So. Maybe he doesn't have the arm. I guess that's what, uh, you know, and he was playing some short, right? Is that what you just said? He was, he played some short before. But, yes, uh, yes. I mean, they, they made, basically made him a second baseman in the minor leagues. Uh, right. But right. Well, I mean, that, that means he's probably not as good as Baez or Russell. Uh, I don't know what the deal is with Russell. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know how that all shakes out. But I, to me, Alcantara is the guy who's going to, take back over for somebody on the infield uh, once they bust. And I know that Alcantara himself still has a little bit of bust rate in him. I mean, he's not making as much contact as I hoped he would. Uh, but I've seen, I'm not sure if I've seen enough to say he's not a bust, but like it's close. I mean, you know, the swing strike rate, 11%, 12% says to me, he's going to improve that strikeout rate just a little bit. Uh, and if he can be a 24%, 25% strikeout rate, then he just needs to improve the walk rate just a little bit or get some Babbitt love. And he has enough power to, to get Babbitt love and to, to uh, get the most out of his uh, balls in play. And he, he has the kind of, you know, the ground ball heavy approach. Um, and he doesn't hit um, a lot of infield flies. Um, I mean, you know, not, not so far at least. So, I I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, Alcantara or Baez or Bryant, only one or two is going to work out. That's just how the numbers work out. But um, they're going to they're just going to flip those guys around. And, you know, whatever they do, you know, for the rest of the season is, may not have anything to do with what they do next year. I mean, just think about by, uh, uh, how Bryant, some people think he can't even play third. So, you know, if he ends up in the outfield, then Alcantara maybe has to play uh, uh, has to play in the infield. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's definitely a real possibility that I'll be eating crow on Javier Baez, and he looks like the guy, but uh, I hope not, because I just like to watch him hit. <laughs> Michael Morris, uh, diagnosed with a strained oblique, sounds like he's going to miss at least the rest of San Francisco's road trip. Uh, they are back home on Tuesday. I would like to think that even if it's a mild strained oblique, uh, they play it cautiously a little bit with him. Uh, and uh, so it's, I don't think it's ne- it's necessarily guarantee. I would not look for him to be in the lineup Tuesday just because that's their hope. Uh, I think that is going to do it for this edition of the Sleeper and the Bust. Uh, we had some, I mean, I thought we had some very exciting topics today, and I was rather excited to talk about them. Uh, you know, very much appreciate uh, you coming on with us and talking some fantastic things today. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. It's been fun. Uh we enjoyed it quite a bit here uh, on this Thursday, and uh, this has been episode number 163. I am your host, Nicholas Minix. Thank you once again for joining us for The Sleeper and the Bust.